This is Vancouver Housing Stories, a podcast mini-series about renting in Vancouver. I'm Helena Crobath, and I help put this project together. In this episode, we hear two audio essays in which the artists explore their own relationships to history and place. In Meeting the Changing City, Susan Liu reflects on her time in Vancouver and how changing property values have impacted her neighborhoods. She asks people in local coffee shops what they think of the housing market. In the second segment, Tiffany Munoz grew up in Vancouver and has vivid memories of False Creek over the years. Her piece digs into the moment of Expo 86 and the way cosmopolitan development projects can change people's relations with a place. Vancouver's losing its soul every day. Reflecting on my experience, with Vancouver housing, I asked some people around me what they think is happening to housing here. When I first landed in Canada from a city near Shanghai, China, one of my friends found a rental apartment for me. It was a three-floor apartment It was very hot in the summer because the building was old and my apartment faced southwest to the sun. However, it was convenient to go anywhere because it was just a few blocks away from Richmond Center and it is quiet because I was new in Canada, and my English was not good. I almost didn't talk to the people in the building. Though it was in Richmond, there were only few Chinese lived in the building. My impression of this building was quiet. I didn't talk to people. I assumed people didn't talk. Anyway, the rental price is not cheap, even though it was an older building. Andy will share his housing story with you first. I'm going to go back a few years. After I finished university and I taught in Africa, I came back to Vancouver around 1971. I got married, and my ex-wife and I bought a house in Caresdale with a beautiful view in 1971, with a view of the whole city. It was a small house, only two bedrooms, for $46,000. I sold, lived there for six years. I sold it to my brother for $80,000 six years later. It was worth 100,000 but my parents helped me buy it so they said sell it to your brother for only 80. So I sold it for 80. That house today is worth about 4 million dollars. It hasn't changed at all. It's a small little house. My brother owns the house and it's worth about 4 million. He could sell it in a minute for 4 million dollars. It was a three bedroom house two floors with a full basement, garage outside, beautiful trees for 
started off only $900 a month. It went up. I was there for 19 years. I paid $1,500. That was the most I ever paid. But last year, the landlord, the lady that I taught with, decided to sell the building. She sold it for $4.2 million. So I had to move. It was very stressful. Very, very, very stressful. I don't know how I found this place. I think I found it through Georgia Strait. And I'm now in a basement suite. My neighbors, my the landlord upstairs in one year has probably been here for two weeks. They have a house somewhere on in northern Vancouver Island, which they live most of all the time. I have two large bedrooms. I have a beautiful dining room, a new kitchen with new stove and fridge. They pay for my heat. I have a beautiful backyard with gorgeous bushes and trees for my cat. And I pay, I'll say, $2,300. So I guess I'm lucky and I feel sorry for people who have to live downtown, pay so much money for one bedroom. I don't know how. It must be very difficult. Anyway, I think it's the important part, Susan, is what's happened to house prices. I think the market has dropped. My landlord got $4 million at the top of the market, and now it's gone down. But imagine $4 million for a house. And I bought my house in 1971 for $46,000. And now my brother has it worth $4 million. So anyway, that's my story. My second home is a house in Richmond. There was a nice neighborhood with beautiful gardens. The kids ride bicycles around the street. When I came back from vacation in China, I found the garden was greener and the flowers was more vivid than before. And my neighbor was working on my garden when I arrived home. In the winter, neighbors help each other to shuffle the snow. A neighbor always asked me for coffee in her comfy sofa. I learned lots of Western culture from her. Though it was a nice neighborhood, there were many houses for sale. The market was hot at that moment. House prices went up. People I know moved to Langley, Delta, and Chilliwack. My name, Paul. Construction, the rise, and special, I noticed high-rise buildings. So I saw a lot of uh, construction, small construction, houses, they are uh, demolated and it's rising big, big uh, high-rise uh, buildings with a lot of apartments, which is a good business for the owners. But for, for normal people, uh, for regular people, it is not so, uh, it's pretty difficult, pretty difficult. What can I say? 
because uh, downtown it's an expensive area and slowly slowly the, 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 the poor people they they have to leave the area I think in my mind I decided to move to downtown because I felt I lived in Richmond was the same as I lived in China I speak Chinese most of time I like to see the different color of life I found an apartment from Craigslist. It was near Ingers Bay with a water and a mountain view. In the morning, the birds flew to my balcony. I felt every breath was fresh. I took many photos during the time I lived in this apartment. It made me feel joyful and artistic. It was an over 200 single bedroom units building. Most of the tenants were young people. People always greeted each other with laughter and happiness. And they were excited to share their stories. I met a musician friend. She played guitar and we sang on English Bay. Life was beautiful for me to go my artistic path in this building. I like this building's personality. But the rental price was high. I have to move out. I met Todd at Coffee House. You know, I live in the West End now, and I find it to be a real community um, where people people are nice, talk to each other, know each other, um, and um, there's a lot of pressure on the West End uh, where they're going to be destroying affordable rental properties and building, it seems, expensive condominiums. Um, and if you want to maintain the neighborhood, if you want to keep the community, the way to do it is, is to maintain the same kind of affordable housing that exists now. As opposed to knocking down a a three, three, four-story apartment building, which is affordable, and replacing it with a ten-story or more condominium property, where the units are beyond the reach of the renters that were renting in that area before. Um, I don't know exactly how to how this you know how you do this, um, but. Generally, my feeling is is that Vancouver is a city that's becoming. Um, it doesn't exactly know where it's going, and who's in charge are developers. Um, and city council is certainly under under Gregor, the previous mayor. City council was was very nice to developers, um, and that's. 
that's not who should be in charge of what the city is is becoming. Because developers don't really care about the city, they care about their development and how much money they can make from their development and the next development and the next development. They don't have a view of the city, they have a view of a development. Now, I just moved to another building. It's only five minutes walk from the last building. Some new high-rises is under construction. There are some seniors in this building. Most of them maybe go on vacation, so it's very quiet inside the building. Some of them walk their dogs and cats. It's a quiet building but noisy construction nearby. I went shopping at David London Drug recently. I was surprised by those new high-rises. Those are tall buildings. I feel I lost the neighborhood I used to feel. I kind of feel I'm in New York. Where is the personality of West End? In new developments, the cost of the rent is so high that it, it's not going to help people who need to rent places. Rental properties should be more affordable. And that's what City Hall should be approving. It should be approving rental development projects with affordable, where, where the rent will be affordable. Not where it's very, very high rents. And these developments then affect also neighborhoods which are single-family dwelling neighborhoods, in it, like in East Van. Tad, you live in West End. Do you think West End is losing its personality? Yeah, the West End certainly will lose its personality. You, and But I don't really think the developers care about it, and I don't really think City Hall cares about it. The only people who care about that are the people who live in the West End now. And if development displaces those people, forces them out, then the West End will lose its personality because it will lose its persons that are responsible for this personality. That's where personality comes from. It comes from the people that are there. It doesn't come from buildings. It comes from what's in the buildings. If you build the kind of buildings that those kind of people can live in, then you maintain the personality. But if you build buildings where those kind of people can't, live in, then, yeah, you lose the personality. Every building has a different culture. It is just like each city has its culture. It has an impact on the people living in it. Happy, joy, sad, frustrated, artistic, etc. A building is a small society. It is integrating with the city, 
Each building is a small community, which makes our cities valuable. It gives us diversity and multicultural. City needs to provide affordable properties to the people, and demands Vancouver unique personality. That was meeting the changing city by Susan Liu. Before we turn to the next piece, we'll listen to some of my conversation with Sydney Ball, who comments on the piece we just heard. Sydney is a steering committee member from the Vancouver Tenants Union. Um, what do you think Andy is trying to get at when he's telling the story of the house his brother bought him? Bought, oh, sorry, the house his brother bought from him. Yeah, so what jumps out of me is that he's kind of saying that the house is essentially the same. So its value has risen despite the fact that there's been no major changes to the same house, even in the first six years between when he bought it and lived in it and then sold it to his brother. um, The value increase between that was, you know, oh my God, tens of thousands of dollars for the same house. Yeah, it sounds like he was kind of in awe of that much money being created out of thin air. Exactly. And I think that's like the the thing about it is that the real estate market and the way that land values appreciated is really like money and wealth is being created out of thin air. That story also really struck me as like a kind of Cain and Abel story or Jacob and Esau story where it's like one brother (laughs) gets this million dollar inheritance and the other is like, oh, nothing for me. Yeah, I should have stuck it out, I guess. Um Yeah, and then he experiences kind of renting in a single-family home after that and kind of sees firsthand his landlord's able to sell the place and receive these millions of dollars for just sitting on the property when he has to go through all this stress of moving and doesn't receive anything, um, even though his landlord doesn't live near him. Um, I mean, he also seems aware of the fact that he's lucky to be able to afford to live in a single-family home. Like, the rent that he listed is not even in the range of um, what most people or what many people can reach. And it's, like, it's it's worth noting that um, for someone that has, like, that much privilege, you also kind of notice that what you're essentially doing is kind of contributing to your landlord's mortgage, even though you are the one that's um, kind of increasing the value of the property and just you living there is increasing the value of the property. It's really interesting how squatting on land as a landlord is seen as a capital investment, but paying into the mortgage as a tenant is not. Um, It's not like a productive job being a landlord. It's just the job of kind of extracting wealth from people. We're going to maybe talk in a later episode a little bit about art washing and developers' relationship to condo creation. And one of those developers is West Bank, who's really um, bought up a lot of plots in the West End and is really doing that right now and it's all this like branding where you take the culture that's been created by the people that have lived there and the low-income people that have lived there and you use that culture to make it attractive to people that can buy real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Next we'll hear an audio composition by Tiffany Munoz. Tiffany's piece, Vancouver's Postmodern Displacement, explores the development of False Creek over the years through international events such as Expo 86 and the Olympics, and the impact these cosmopolitan projects have on residents of a neighborhood.
Throughout the 20th century, Vancouver used to be known as more of a working-class sports city, filled with homegrown, independent businesses and idiosyncratic character. In the 1970s, locals could pick up a bowl of rice somewhere like the Nam in Kitsilano out west, or a sandwich at the Ovaltine on Hastings out east for about a couple dollars. Even I remember as a teen in the 1990s being able to take transit when Vancouver had BC Transit and not translate for 75 cents, or pick up a slice of mediocre pizza on Granville Street for less than a dollar. Other oral history accounts have documented folks hanging out at the pier during hot summers in Vancouver. During its mid-century days, Vancouver also had a reputation as a boom and bust city. Basically, a cycle of big economic booms followed by recessions. Rinse, repeat. Vancouver relied heavily on its natural resource industries, particularly forestry, and many SRO hotels occupied by loggers and business travelers. The city was much smaller back then with its small town feel, much slower than the hustling metropolis counterparts out east like Toronto and Montreal. Long before becoming a young playground city due to its views, proximity to nature, and therefore coveted by the luxury class that Vancouver is known today, like California of the North. However, Vancouver has always been a city in constant upheaval, blatantly due to urban planning and renewal pushing out the lower classes, using and discarding indigenous and Chinese residents, such as Chinatown, which was segregated from the rest of the poor, way before Chinatown became an ethnic tourist destination for its diners, shops, sights, sounds, and smells in the last few decades of the 20th century. Historically, it's through looking back that we can get an idea to where we are today at the current point in time. As we know, Vancouver is essentially a young city incorporated in 1886. So, let's look at two major periods, or coffin nails, for upheaval and displacement in Vancouver's most recent history, starting with the city's coming out party, its World's Fair Centennial. Expo 86. Halfway between Europe and the Orient, linking the Americas and the Pacific Rim, people from around the globe gather in Vancouver to celebrate the triumphs of human achievement. A variety of multimedia presentations present British Columbians and their unique province to the world. So ladies and gentlemen, together with my wife, we have the greatest pleasure in declaring Expo 86 officially open. And to have the time of their life. I was only four years old during Expo 86, and my memories are foggy but vivid. More black and white than gray, considering I had no grasp of the political implications surrounding the entire event. You cannot put on a world-class exposition like you see sitting out there and under construction and recapture your costs in five and a half months. 
To me back then, Expo 86 was just a loud, colorful, multi-sensory party for my toddler brain. Back then, it was the height of 80s excess. Where Expo 86 was situated itself was up around False Creek, curving around the start of downtown Vancouver. This is the piece of land and neighborhood, now Olympic Village, where former Expo remnant Science World still operates, up until the edges of Chinatown and the Georgia Viaduct. Expo 86 was a landmark event. It was used by the provincial and municipal governments to showcase and commodify Vancouver to the world. At that time, it was like the beginning of selling Vancouver's land, an early seed to the current omnipresent real estate industry that looms before us now. When a delegation of Europeans visited Vancouver earlier this spring, they were, in a couple of words, knocked out by the city. The Expo 86 party lasted six months from May to October of 1986. It was the final World's Fair party for the 20th century. That said, leading up to and during that time, Vancouver's original SRO stock, that is, single-room occupancy hotels, shrunk considerably and displaced many residents in order to house the tourists for Expo. One particular gruesome result of the displacement led to the direct death of a local senior resident that made headline news, a dark detail that's rarely discussed, the stress of displacement on more vulnerable residents for the sake of Expo. Very little of both SROs and the Expo Fair remains today. Part of the storied Expo land besides Science World still remains vacant today, now owned by a property developer, Concord Pacific. Some rumors claim the land's 30-plus year vacancy is due to contamination, while other talk has suggested turning the entire land into a park. That said, there doesn't appear to be an explanation why housing hasn't been built here. But it's also been a space for temporary events, most famously the Molson Indy, which lasted after Expo 86 until 2004. I remember attending several Indies in all their decibel shattering and neon glory with my father as a child. But the early 2000s were a death knell to the annual event. When the condo towers facing the vacant Expo lands were built, just before Main Street Skytrain Station. The new resident complained of the noise, which ended the ending. Soon enough, Vancouver started to gain its reputation as No, no, fun, fun, city, city. In the time since, several casinos have popped up around the False Creek area. The gambling industry itself is another post-expo VC industry. In most recent memory, Expo 86 was definitely an indicator of an early wave of displacement for urban renewal and density. The mid-1980s also brought the early seeds of cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism is an ideology that all people belong to one community, all who share the same sense of morality. It was meant to connect an inclusiveness for those who had an economic relationship in common. 
Cosmopolitanism's political structure included various nationalities, which also is part of socio-political philosophies. Cosmopolitanism sets part of the foundation to globalization in the 21st century. But for Expo 86, the promised hype cost so much, and what was the trade-off for Vancouver in return for all of this? Nearly 30 years after Expo 86, Vancouver welcomed the 2010 Winter Olympics. The 21st Olympic Winter Games in 2010 are awarded to the city of Vancouver. Like a house that's not a home. Much to the chagrin of housing advocates, the 2010 Olympics ushered in a second major wave for fast-tracked urban renewal and increased density as a means to market Vancouver for investors and new affluent residents. During Mayor Gregor Robertson's Vision Vancouver 10-year reign from 2008 to 2018, they wished to add Vancouver to the world-class city stage for the tourism industry and greenest city by 2020 for the city's global image. But image is all it is, essentially surface level. It is nearly 2020 now, more than halfway through 2019. Vancouver was looking to insert and assert itself as a major player in the global economy, competing with luxury cities. This was, of course, echoed previously in the 1970s in Montreal by Mayor Jean Drapeau, where the city similarly overturned neighborhoods in the name of cosmopolitan development at a huge, long-lasting financial deficit. Montreal also hosted Expo in 1967. The Olympics themselves are known to not make money and actually their aftermath only hurts the economies of their host cities. All host cities end up with deficits. Vancouver itself ran the least so far, which isn't saying much. And frankly, the 2010 Olympics was only a two-week condensed party for Vancouver compared to Expo's six-month-long party. Some attendees in the city reported enjoying a new side to Vancouver, free events and traffic-reduced streets. But these benefits could have been imagined without the Olympic price tag. This period, post-2010 now, which led to the fast-track goal for increased density causing more reno demovictions, encouraging wealth prosperity via investment in real estate, but also leading to house flipping, empty homes, disregard for heritage or cynical heritage promotion, monster lot houses, land assemblies for towers and townhouses, massive market rental increases with little off-market options. More power and control was given to developers, paying politicians off, while pay-to-play lunches with ticket costs in the multiple thousands has become the norm. The irony is so many of us grew up watching this plotline in various film and television shows. Except in those storylines, the people won, and the greedy developer villains often lost. During the 2010 Olympics, I was 28 and living in the West End, but I could already feel the changes in rental increases, with renoviction legal fights happening in neighboring buildings. 
which eventually gave my reason to move to East Van promptly after. I did not attend any Olympic events. If Expo itself had happened today, I likely would not have attended either. With the 2010 Winter Olympics, we could see the beginning of an increased class divide, occurring in downtown Vancouver especially. More luxury retailers moved in, plus some big box retailers, all pushing out the independents. And it was gentrification's grip coming swiftly. To keep the corporate machine happy, the city even chose to violate human rights with a temporary ban on protests against the Olympics during the event. On a retail level as well, I remember small shops suffering and going out of business. Less working class creative locals were coming downtown, others were moving to more affordable and supportive cities. The increase of mainstream and privileged upper classes weren't interested in true character and individuality if it was unknown and not yet commodified. They were more interested in lux and assimilation of behavior. It's what they're most comfortable with, after all. Looking back now, both events on the plus side created jobs for the city, albeit briefly. Today, with increasing awareness and backlash against development priorities and displacement of residents and communities, Vancouver and its current municipal government, including so-called voluntary renter and mayor Kennedy Stewart, are working to attempt to protect existing rental stock, so it seems, with watered-down policies compared to stronger rental policies in some of the surrounding suburbs. Surely, this is still designed to push Vancouver's working classes further afield for the developers in any case. Vancouver's failures in its economic choices has led to the creation of groups like the Vancouver Tenants Union, which brings together unlikely demographics who exist below the upper classes. This type of backlash hasn't quite been seen since opposition in the Strathcona neighborhood when the city wanted to replace the area with a highway in the 1960s, although the subsequent Georgia Viaduct did displace the Hogan's Alley portion of the East End neighborhood. In the case of housing, the whole notion of home. The personal often turns political for many people. The city itself is constantly changing. All this displacement comes as no surprise as Vancouver is a city built on displacement of the lower classes, indigenous people, and migrants. That was Vancouver's Postmodern Displacement by Tiffany Munoz. I hope you enjoyed these audio essays in which the artists investigate their own histories with neighborhoods and dig into how these neighborhoods have been impacted by real estate and international corporate events. Thanks to Vivo Media Arts Centre for hosting this project, the BC Arts Council for funding, the Vancouver Tenants Union, and the tenants who shared their stories. To learn more about the project and the participants involved, head over to our SoundCloud page.